Now you can start. I've been talking about uh, beginning to include the first part of our time together also on the tape for people who are listening to it someplace else because I've been thinking more and more about ways to uh, really connect the instructions for meditation practice with the insights that we hope to have. Sometimes when uh, I, I've been thinking about saying for years that uh, I'm very interested in other people's um, meditation practices or contemplative practices or any kind of practices. The practice means we're doing something in order to get better at it. And so the question that I like to ask anybody who's doing any kind of a practice, keeping a daily journal, going to a haiku class three days a week, going to a Tai Chi class four times a week, running for uh, 20 minutes a day on the treadmill five times a week, whatever it is. The question I like to ask them is, what do you do? Okay, running on a treadmill is sort of self-evident. Uh, tai Chi, they might give me a demonstration or a haiku or whatever. They tell me what it is specifically that they do. Uh, and then the question that's really important to me is towards what end? What are you hoping to accomplish from this? Because uh, among other things, I think the more over the years I have understood what I really hope will happen from practicing, whatever practicing means, so we'll do that in a minute, what I really hope will happen from practicing is that the kinds of mistakes, uh, the kinds of thoughts in my mind, the problem, as Paul Simon said, is all inside your head. So the, the problem, the, uh, the operational habits of my mind that cause me to uh, suffer in all the ways that I suffer, that cause me to be uh, jealous or angry or uh, discontented or uh, envious, maybe that's the same as jealous, but they all, and they, those all arise in people, they, not, they don't stop arising. But in a mind, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that's wise enough. They arise, we see them. We see them for the, um, for the pain that they create, and they don't stay. You know, the, the Buddha had a simile a lot, a metaphor, metaphor a lot, of uh, picking up a hot coal, where he said, if you pick up a hot coal, it's usually an accident. If you pick it up with your hand, it's an accident. You didn't mean to, you, know, you didn't realize it was. You pick it up, you realize it's hot, you drop it right away. And I didn't actually understand that, I mean, I understood the metaphor, but I didn't actually get its link to mental states until sometime later. Maybe as I tell it to you now, it'll be the first time clear to me. But how many times in my mind, uh, in anybody's mind, but I can only speak for my own, uh, if I suddenly, uh, maybe I covet something a friend of mine says, you want to see my remodeled kitchen? Step in, I'll just show you my remodeled kitchen. See, it's at my, and I notice that her kitchen is not crowded, it's, it's well planned, things fit in the closets, it's all tidy, it looks like a magazine spread, my house doesn't look like that. What if I look like this? Uh, and kitchen envy arises in my mind. <laughs> And then, you know, I, I could just arise, I could look just like and like it. 
and say, wow, this is great, such a lovely kitchen, terrific. May you thrive in this kitchen and may you enjoy it. And I could have presumably tremendous pleasure in somebody else thriving in their beautiful kitchen. And backing off from there, I could say, huh, wish I had that and let it go. Or I could start in thinking, I wonder if I'm too old to remodel my kitchen. <laughs> Who knows if I'm going to be in my house that all long? Maybe I have to move into some other place. And besides, by the time you pick up, you know, if you make one change in your kitchen, it's X many thousands of dollars. So there's all kinds of ways that my mind could not put it down right away. Anybody recognizes that? <laughs> yeah. Was that a good simile, the metaphor, the, the kitchen business? <laughs> uh, but it does it all the time. And most of the time, we catch it and we say, all right, forget about it, uh, I think. But sometimes it doesn't. Somebody else has some good fortune that we don't have. Or somebody mostly, the most agitating, I think, is somebody does something that frightens us or worries us and we don't like it. And the, the, you could not like it. That was unpleasant. If I accidentally, not or purposely, turn on the news and I hear some egregious event that's happened on the, politi on the political scene, somebody said X or Y, that really is a terrible thing to say. I could say, you know, it's really a difficult political season. May we all come out of this well at the end, and may I not marinate my mind in agitation. I could say that. Or I could say, I can't believe it. Brr. I'm going to tell a few people that he said, but I, you know, I wouldn't even say that because it's a nasty word. So what would I do? Anyway, it's not nice. For my mind, it's not nice. It's painful to the mind. So I had to have a mind that's, um, the Buddha talks about uh, a well-trained <coughs> mind, that you're really training it. Uh, the word for the, the, the the term for training effort to have the mind that makes at every crossroad the, the, the skillful decision to say, well, if I go this way, I'll suffer, and if I go this way, I won't, I'll go this way, and I won't. To at every crossroad really see clearly, be mindful enough to know what's happening. Uh, and really at every moment to be able to say, I'm going to just keep it together, just, this is fine and develop a certain kind of steadiness and poise in the mind. Those are the three mind trainings, mindfulness, concentration, and effort, that are the heart of the Buddhist path, or a heart of the Buddhist path. What I want to really talk about today is there are three hearts of the Buddhist path. One of them is learning and talking about, it's what we do here when we talk to each other about what really causes suffering in the mind and making ourselves the, uh, uh, the intention, as Cher said, she had this morning, the intention to say, I'm really going to go back and really try again. I can, uh, I'm undertaking the precept to keep my mind as clear as I can so that I make wise decisions and that wise decisions become a habit. Is that mind training through wisdom, mind training through watching and being alert to the movements of the mind and when they're going in a direction that creates suffering, really saying, I'm not going that way, I'm gonna go the other way with that, which is what we do when we meditate. And it's what we do when we don't lose our patience with the dry cleaner who says the sweater that you wanted to wear today has not arrived. We said it would, but it didn't. And you say, and the, it's the ability to say in that moment, well, 
I wish it were here, but it's not. <laughs> Making a scene. I'm, I'm always really so... I'm surprised when people make a scene about something that can't be otherwise. You could make a scene, but the sweater will not materialize. You know, that if it's not here, it's not here. And it makes so much more sense in terms of preserving peace of mind. Say, okay, I wish it were. I'll be back tomorrow or the day after, since tomorrow is a holiday and the holiday party that I was supposed to wear that sweater. But nevertheless, I'm not wearing the sweater. I'll see you in three days. And three others, which I mainly are the ones I want to talk about today, are the ones that train integrity and um, and really the the reason I wanted the um, uh, tape on early uh, today is that I thought I would um, uh, teach and lead a meditation that's a trainer of integrity, and I really thought it was important to have the tape on to share that with everyone. So integrity means um, morality. It means uh, making decisions that don't cause anybody else any distress. When I make a decision not to entertain a grudge, the person who I'm not I am causing not to have um, it's on behalf of my own mind. Let me just rephrase that. <laughs> the decision to not entertain a grudge, <coughs> not entertain a lust, it arises, you notice it, it goes away. The, uh, the decision to not entertain it is a decision on behalf of my own comfort. I'm not doing it for anybody else but myself. I'll feel better. Uh, in the long run, I might be nicer to all the people I run into, so maybe they'll feel better as a secondary um, as a secondary result, but behaving in a way, in interpersonally, in a way that doesn't cause distress to the other person is what integrity is about. Uh, in the in the going to the finding out that the cleaners does not have the sweater there, and the cleaner is unhappy when they go through it up and down. Up and down. Did you ever have that experience? They're looking for it, looking for it, looking for it. You can see that certain amount of anxiety, not only in the dry cleaner who's looking for it, but in the people around you, because there's a certain amount of worry about what are you going to do when you find out. You know, they, is this person going to have a scene, and will I be unhappy about them having a scene? Maybe you don't have that. You have that. I mean, uh, yeah. uh, it's vicarious distress for the other people involved. I think if the whole world were full, of, this is skipping to the end. If the whole world of people were people who experienced vicarious distress at the dis discomfort of other people, we'd stop the world and we'd make it different. Everybody would take care of each other. So the part about integrity has to do with behaving in such a way and making the, the self-discipline to behave in such a way that does not cause distress to other people. And when people, uh, when people join Buddhist communities, depending on the community, uh, Buddhism, like any other religion, has a code of ethics. Uh, every religion that I know about has a code of ethics, Ten Commandments, or 
five precepts or eight precepts if you're uh, uh, a monk, eight daily precepts and really uh, several hundred precepts if you take on the life of a monastic. In every religion that I know enough about, you know where I, I actually I, I feel free enough to say in every religion because uh, my text for uh, the religions I know less about has been the religions of the world by Houston Smith that's the best-selling ever book about the religions of the world it's at least 40 years old now maybe 50 Houston Smith is 90 ish maybe past uh, but when 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 I first read the book the first time I thought to myself I could read this book over and over it's so kindly written about every religious path saying these are the ways that uh, practicing in this discipline uh, exalts and exalts picks up the people in it and the first thing he said is every established religious path has a, a, a list of ethics so when Buddhists uh, uh, join a community in a formal way or go on retreat or when people who are followers of this ethic get up in the morning start the day I know people who keep the five precepts ta taped to their uh, mirror in their bathroom so while they're shaving or putting on makeup they are re-saying the precepts I know uh, couples whose uh, commitment vows involve those precepts who get up in the morning and say to each other, because I love you, I promise to not harm you in any way, because I love you, I promise to not take anything from you that you haven't freely given, because I love you, I promise to uh, speak in a way that doesn't cause you discomfort because I love you. I promise to express my sexuality in a way that's loving, not exploitive or abusive. Because I love you, I promise to keep my mind as free as I can from intoxicants, every kind of thing that confuses it. I am very clear that in a culture that uh, thinks of intoxicants only as things that you ingest as, as drugs or alcohol, that I really want to put the emphasis in that sentence, not on um, substances that we ingest that are tangible, but substances that are intangible, like great volumes of cable TV or uh, gossiping uh, as a practice uh, or um, not reporting income tax appropriately or which have to do with awareness of motivation in one's own mind this is a very long beginning to, me to meditation instructions but now we'll sit for our usual 35 minutes maybe 40 even because what I'd like to do is the following I have to tell you one more instruction some important prelude this is the instruction. 
I am committed to the idea that when our minds are clear, we behave well. I really think that human beings, by and large, are, uh, are well-meaning. We feel bad if, uh, if we hurt something or somebody. I went over a bump when I was uh, coming down one particular back road this morning. I was driving along and suddenly I felt bump. And I had a terrible feeling that I'd run over an animal crossing the street. And I looked back and it was a bump in the road. So it wasn't. But I think that that terrible feeling is the feeling that we have when we even think we might have hurt somebody. I think most people do not mean to inflict pain. It's, I think human beings are wired to be compassionate. And uh, in those cases where clearly it's not there, something has happened. Either they have different neurological wiring or they were brought up in a different kind of a cultural context or the habits they've learned have not, um, have not led to <coughs> scrupulous behavior. Most of us feel happy when we've done the right thing. I believe that. We'll talk about it later on, but I really believe that. So I think that one of the, uh, uh, <coughs> there are at least two effects of doing a, uh, a meditation that involves reflecting on the precepts. The first is that any contemplative reflection means, by, its ver by the very nature of contemplative means, that you stopped doing other things and you're contemplating at that moment. Maybe you're contemplating with your eyes closed, the sensation of your body sitting here and the sounds in the room and the ambient heating noises and sounds of people in the room. But we've stopped. We're not in the middle of a supermarket or driving our car. We're not doing something else that requires a lot of uh, intellect or decision-making. So we've stopped and the mind rests. That's probably not the most sophisticated research term, research term, but it doesn't have a job to do really. And it relaxes itself just because it doesn't have a job to do. The side effect of that is that your muscles relax. And then, on the, in, in addition to just sitting and relaxing, letting the mind um, calm down from its vigilant task-achieving state, if one reflects, and I'll actually <coughs> mention those five precepts, if one reflects on those five precepts, I normally find that in my own mind, as I say the precept, they're all something I'd like to be doing. My mind will tell me, as I sit quietly after that, a few instances where I maybe didn't do it just that way. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that I think that the intention for moral inventory is um, met by the spontaneous um, Oh, impulse of the mind to present a moral inventory. My experience with that is when I notice something I haven't done as scrupulously as I'd like to have done it, 
I don't feel so terrible as much as I feel determined to not do that in the future. I feel remorse and, and determination more than I feel guilt and shame. It just works that way. So I think it's hugely potent contemplative practice. So now we'll just sit. Um, be about a half hour all together. And I'll let us sit quietly for 15 minutes. I won't say anything. Maybe 20 minutes. Because I'd really like for everybody's mind to relax. <coughs> and then in the last 10 or 15 minutes, I will intersperse those promises into the contemplative space.
We'll continue to sit quietly, and I'd like to invite you to say to yourself, silently in your mind, as an act of kindness to myself and others, 
I promise to not harm living beings. As an expression of wisdom, I promise to not take anything that isn't freely given to me. As part of my intention to end suffering, I promise to speak carefully so that my speech does not cause harm.
as an expression of wisdom. I promise to use all of my energies, including sexual energies, in ways that are neither exploitive or abusive. Aware that acting in confusion creates suffering, I promise to keep myself unintoxicated.
May these precepts be the cause of happiness. We most often uh, end our sittings, I know, with um, mentioning people that we have in our hearts with uh, special prayers or blessings because these are special times. But I wanted to pause now and have us just spend a little time reflecting on the experience with the precepts. And uh, we'll put our blessings at the very end because now is starting a holiday season when really particularly important to remember who it is that we are especially sensitive about. So I wondered, uh, by the way, how it was for you with the precepts. Did it, did it happen for you as it does for me that uh, I say one of them to myself and uh, there were five of them, so mostly, uh, maybe some of them, I said it and, you know, I thought to myself, nothing's really coming up about that, you know. But then another one, and I'm sitting, and it floats in, you know, I just was a little bit not, it wasn't so cool that I did with so-and-so or this and that. Does it work for you, in other words, as a moral inventory? And uh, are you interested in saying, uh, you don't have to say what exactly, it's not a confession that I'm looking for. It's really what happened for you that you could talk about without telling all the chapter and verse. Yeah. I'm not sure that this is working. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah. Is it working? It should be. Does this green light is on? The green light is on. Put it, she needs to hold it close to her mouth. Oh, I, no, it doesn't sound like it's working. It's working and something. Well, I can just kind of talk loud um, about not harming any other two things, living being. Um, years and years ago, uh, at night, late, when I was in Mexico, I stepped on a beige scorpion, and it stung me. Oh, here we go. Yeah. Um, and I, in the foot, and, and I was very, very ill all night, and there were no doctors there, and it was very terrifying. And now, when I, it's not very often, but when I do see a scorpion, I smash it. <laughs> and, and that precept made me feel bad about that, but especially if it's in my house. And I've got this horrible idea that the only good scorpion is a dead scorpion after what I went through. Um, and the other thing is, I now I, my husband and I really like to go trout fishing. And it's so exciting when you hook a trout. It's, and, and yet, I always feel bad when we have to dispatch them, even though we always eat them and they're very delicious and it's very exciting to catch one and, um, and of course he loves to fish and, but I feel bad when I pull this living being out of the water and I wanna just, I don't wanna leave it 
strung on a hook in the water. I want to hit it on the head to dispatch it fast, or I just feel bad. And now when I think about that precept, both the scorpions and the trout, I feel like maybe I shouldn't do that. I don't know. I'm really so glad that you brought that up. I'm really so glad that you brought it up because it brings up so many moral questions and uh, I have a I have a particular uh, understanding of that. Relax, I think you're okay, in other words. <laughs> but, uh, but I wonder if it came up for anybody else, that particular one. Yeah? I immediately thought of ants which were invading my house and what to do, what to do. What to do, what to do with the ants. Uh, Nancy? Well, I've thought of antibiotics and, and killing organisms. That's right. Yeah. We take antibiotics, they kill, they kill bacteria. Uh, I, I eat meat. I eat meat. So do I. <laughs> so does His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Uh, vegetarianism is sometimes erroneously linked with the Buddha's teaching. Uh, there are very wonderful reasons for being vegetarian, and in my family, I am very adept that on a Christmas, at Thanksgiving dinner, everybody has a different parameter of what they eat and don't eat. And with, and I have tremendous respect for people's choices. The, uh, I think for myself, it's not, for myself, that decision is made out of uh, not so much the act itself, what happens, I took this antibiotic and I killed bacterium, or I ate that chicken that somebody else killed the chicken, is uh, based on whether there was intention in my mind to cause harm. So I really think about harming living beings, not killing living beings. And there are people who take that precept who say killing living beings, but it's not possible to live. I mean, we, we step on animals all the time and we step on grass, which is also living, and, uh, and we do take antibiotics and we eat food and all kinds of things were involved in that. And with very big respect for people who uh, have decided to be vegan, have decided to be vegetarian, for reasons of respect for this living world, I think that for myself, the pre I am best served, not by changing my diet, but by thinking to myself, is there any, uh, the presence or absence of um, negativity and aversion in my mind is really what I try to be. Uh, attentive to. As you point out, the trout tastes delicious, your husband loves it, you're having a good time together, it's one of the things that you do. You do eat it. Um, I think it's about uh, the intention in the mind. And the intention that I most don't want to have in my mind is the intention to cause harm uh, intentionally to hurt somebody. You say, well, I, I killed the, the fish. Uh, but you did it in a humane way right away. And most of us who eat, I, I think probably a lot of us here in this room think about sustainability and we think about where are we buying the food that we're eating and was it raised in a humane way so that the, we can uh, feel that our, uh, our uh, wish to not be harmful, not cause pain in the world. Gratuitous pain. You know what, the, the, uh, the image that often comes up in my mind with this is, um, it's a tiny image it, that comes from an, um, 
uh, a film made by Margaret Meads. So it's a long time ago. I saw the film dozens of times when I, yeah, 30 and 40 years ago when I was teaching uh, developmental psychology. I can't believe it's 40 years ago, but it is. Uh, and uh, there, was a, there was a film called Five Families, and it had to do with five families in different parts of the world, in rural India, in rural Japan, in rural Canada, uh, maybe, I don't even remember, in rural France, and one other one. But in each case, Margaret Mead, as you surely know, was an, uh, a cultural anthropologist, and she wanted to see uh, whether child raising, how child raising techniques differed in five different cultures. And so she picked out rural cultures in all those places, and in each case she picked out a family to film. In each case the family had a, a child that was, I th think, always about six months old, about six months old, not more than a year, not walking and not an absolute infant, probably around six, seven, eight months old, and older siblings, one or two. And in each case, the, she filmed the family having a meal together and uh, going to bed and um, having a meal, going to bed and bathing the baby. And showed different, and it, it's, it, people now probably don't show it except to honor Margaret Mead if they're anthropology students or something, because it's very, a fundamental anthropology to make a decision about cultural traits being made necessarily out of how babies are washed, but maybe not. <coughs> uh, she said, notice in this, in this culture, uh, the baby is not allowed to uh, have a part in, uh, in the bath, so the mother is washing the baby as if it's kind of um, like a, a pot or uh, a, a non-responsive object. And here in this other one, the mother is playing with the baby and the baby is whipping away the washcloth and they're playing with it back and forth. And I honestly don't remember which cultures do X and Y, but uh, the thing that I remembered is there was a scene, uh, and it could have been in any of the cultures, but it was a scene in the Japanese family where the baby was a baby, six or eight months old. There was a slightly older sibling, and there was a slightly older sibling. There was a brother, a boy who was probably four, three, four, and uh, who had, uh, at that time, maybe it's quite different now, uh, enjoyed special status as a, as a boy in this family. And maybe it's a brother or a sister, I don't remember, who's getting, uh, who's sitting at some point, and the mother is not watching, doing something else. And this, uh, the four-year-old, maybe the baby picked up a toy or something from the floor. Four-year-old is right there, and he picks up his hand, and he's just about to hit this younger sibling. And you see his, his distressed face, and his hand comes up, and he starts it down, and then he stops, like this, he goes, and he stops like he's thinking about it, and he smooths the baby's head like this. And he comes in mid-flight 
And then something holds him back and he does like this. And his mother is not watching the whole thing. And you have this good feeling that by this time he has internalized the fact that when you feel like doing this, you don't necessarily have to. You can do like this and you can stop and do like that. And I can see that you actually got that picture by my telling it to you. It seems like a long tell and I hadn't planned to. But, you know, we start to learn when we're two and three, anybody who has had experience with a child, your own or others, that when, uh, you know, when, you're, when you're nursing a baby and it's pulling your earring, you don't say, that's my earring, you just take off the earring. You know, you, you, you help the baby not get into trouble over it and not hurt your ear about it. When it's uh, four years old and it's uh, throwing your stuff around, you say, wait a minute, that's my stuff. I'll just put it over here. This is mine, this is yours. Somewhere between six months and four, we learn this is mine and this is yours. And we also learn to restrain impulses. <laughs> One of the other babies in this film is about to, oh, I can't even remember which one it is. It's, a, it, it's probably the Canadian one because it would be the only one that has a, a high chair. But uh, you know, everybody else is sitting in their mother's lap and eating in a rural culture 100 years ago. But here's this baby sitting in a high chair with a cookie and eating it, how much of it it wants. And then it's thinking about it doesn't want it anymore. And it's thinking about throwing it on the floor. And its mother looks at it from over there. And then it doesn't throw it on the floor, puts it back here. Somewhere in that period of time, it learned that all you have to do is give a certain look. And it means don't throw it on the floor. And you internalize that. And I'm, so this is all about what do we eat and how do we make decisions and how do we live in a community where all of those decisions, the big decision about ending life, a big decision is at end of life, is it all right to help people finish their lives two days earlier or two hours earlier or two months earlier than they might have if they weren't helped along? Or in these days of compassionate care, uh, can, is it all right to help yourself? That's an ending. Uh, uh, but it, is it harming somebody? Uh, even trickier, and uh, so let's not spend a lot of time, is the question of abortion. Who gets hurt? Who's being harmed by an abortion in, in good time? What's the intention in the mind of the mother or the father? And the mind and the intention is certainly to end the life, but the intention often is to cause less suffering when this isn't going to be good for the child or good for the mother. Such a complex question. Such a kind of, to make a law about it rather than to say, this is an individual moral decision that people can make from which there are sequelae if you decide A or if you decide B. There are no easy answers to those things. So I think if you have a list, eat this, don't eat this, don't eat meat, don't eat this. Um, don't clean out ants, but it's terrible to have the ants in your flour and, that, and in the sugar and then and in your kitchen. Uh, that, how can we make a decision and do that I have a friend who says, I wish my, my aunts 
uh, a very swift they meet, <laughs> but they can't be in my house. And uh, but it seems to me so. It's a long-winded answer, but it seems to me very clear for myself that the that if there is no impulse to harm to hurt anybody, yeah, I, I am going to kill the ants. But and but I'm also going to put. Um, lemon juice all around my door so they come in less. But uh, all the time we make decisions and to, uh, to somehow make some decision in my heart that I want to be sure that kindness exists. I feel bad for the ants when I do that. But I feel bad for myself when my kitchen gets overrun. So, What I think is really wonderful, I'm glad these questions came up, but this is what I meant. I'll tell you what I meant to do. <laughs> but what? But I'm glad they came up because uh, you think, well, uh, is this really the spiritual practice that I want? I was thinking about ants or rats or mice or mouse traps. I just saw the uh, the Nutcracker again. Anybody went to the San Francisco Nutcracker this year? It was so beautiful. It was really beautiful. And my daughter who danced in it as a child is in her 50s now. So I actually have seen quite a lot of Nutcrackers <laughs> since she graduated from that. I, and they have a new production this year, and it's so beautiful. And uh, one of the things that they've done, since I've seen so many iterations of it, I know when they change a certain piece of it, they've changed the piece in the scene where the king of the mice and the mice are having a battle with the king of the soldiers and the soldiers, or the leader of the soldiers, the captain of the soldiers, who becomes, um, turns into a, uh, a, the dancer and takes, her, takes away Clara into uh, Nutcracker land, dreamland. Um, there's always a fight uh, a sword fight, a mock sword fight between the king of the mice, big mice, big mouse costume, and all these other mice who keep doing like this and looking like mice, a little mice gesture. And the, uh, the leader of the soldiers, and they have this huge back forth ballet sword fight. And uh, in all the years that I've gone, the uh, sword fight always ends with the king of the soldiers, head of the soldiers, really uh, kills the mouse with his sword. This year, they didn't do that. Did you notice they changed that? It, when he steps on the mouse. They rushed off. Somebody, the, some of the, the soldiers, somebody, or Clara rushes off the stage and pulls in an enormous mouse trap <laughs> that he gets parried back and back and back and back. And so instead of killing him, he pushes him back till he steps in the mouse trap and gets out of the mousetrap and holds his wounded leg and falls off the front stage. And I think that between last year and this year, they decided it was this time to take out the killing the mice because it was probably too upsetting to young children or it unnerved some people. It's a really cute little part with that mousetrap, but it's definitely a new, maybe it's, a, it's, it's you know, how the world changes slowly, slowly. Uh, you know how the world changes slowly, slowly. The, the ballet corps and the whole troupe is much more ethnically diverse than it was 50 years ago. Not tremendously, but noticeably uh, more. 
which is great. And all the people, the, the little people, the adults at the party, the, the small people, uh, the children who are dancing, just really, um, it's nice to see. It's nice to see. And that has really definitely changed over the years. So that was a long diversion into... Anyway, did you have something else to say about those precepts? I was really interested in, did you have that experience, uh, also interested in, I'm interested in everything you already said, of uh, that there's a, pro a prompt, the, the, uh, the effect of a prompt in the mind. Yeah. I was very curious about the languaging of the precepts. I noticed they were all negative in nature. And um, with, uh, uh, for instance, to avoid intoxicants, not to be abusive or exploitive in sexuality, rather than to have a clear mind mm -hmm. and to be expressive and um, um, uh, what I'm trying to think of, of a positive way to express the sexuality one. Okay. The other interesting thing about that particular precept is it felt a little more um, male-identified because um, a bold generalization for me might be uh, perhaps women, uh, a positive precept for a woman might be that... Uh, uh, she's better at maintaining boundaries, healthy boundaries in her sexuality or fulfilling, fulfilling her own needs. I think those are both very good points. Let me see if I can think about one at a time. You know, I think the reason that they're said in the negative, first of all, why they're the way they are and those that they are and not other things. Also, I got this idea from Houston Smith a long, long time ago with religions of humans, which used to be called the religions of man until the last printing, which now it's called the religions of the world, by the way. So, um, but he said one of the reasons that cultures transculturally have uh, codes of ethics is because they specifically address things that people have tendencies to do, which are so that it is the impulse that comes up that we feel negative to hurt somebody. So they're, they're recognizing that uh, not to hurt somebody, even when you feel like it. Uh, these days, uh, uh, when you read some <coughs> of the literature about mindfulness in the schools, and schools in, in uh, or uh, mindfulness in, in prison populations, <coughs> Spirit Rock has just sent a, a, a present, by the way, through me in response to a person who wrote to me, and he said, I'll bring this in, in the new year. Uh, a person who wrote and I, from some city in New York where he's a, um, a therapist in a prison, uh, a heavy security prison for men, and who uh, is doing work with, uh, with groups, and one of, the, one of his things is he's introduced the, the tapes from Dharma Seed and people are listening to them and talking about them and talking about impulse control and talking about uh, not harming other people. 
and um, talking about telling the truth and restraining impulses. And um, he sent a long letter asking for some books from the Spirit Rock Library, which Spirit Rock, I'm happy to say, has sent them as a gift from Spirit Rock, uh, talking about the kinds of things that people say in their sharing in his group about how they have uh, been working on restraining the impulse to anger or restraining the impulse to hurt someone or shout out. So it's it really um, looking at what do people have problems with and then having the, the idea that I'm allying myself with a set of values that says I'm not going to do this anymore. So I think that's why they're that the other idea is I'll, I'll set appropriate boundaries is a terrific thing for people who it, it's a it's a different it's a different context. Uh, I'll take care of myself. Maybe for people who more often are hurt, these the, maybe the precepts are I'll stop hurting people. I often think that the first of all I want to say three more things about the precepts, and then I'll tell you what I brought to show you. One of them is that it's standard to recite the precepts together as a group when you start a retreat. And uh, the reason they came up last week, particularly when we were talking, is I talked about on September 12, 2001, when we were all here in the morning, the day after the, the calamity in New York, that one of the things we did was we all recited the precepts together and that it felt very good to say that. Just a sense that somewhere in the world, everybody hasn't gone mad. Here's a group of a hundred or more people who are prepared to say, I'm really not gonna harm anybody and I'm not gonna exploit or, uh, I'm just not gonna hurt people. It's very consoling to be in a group of like-minded people so that the thought in your mind the world has gone mad is at least slightly counteracted. There are some people who feel as I do that people can behave themselves. That's also a value I think of saying those or hearing them in a, in a group. And I remember Houston Smith saying we only have precepts about things that we might possibly transgress. I, I think that he's the person who said we don't have a precept in anybody's tradition that says I undertake the precept not to stuff peas up my nose. Because nobody has, I think it's Houston Smith, it's somebody who said it in that context, nobody has an impulse to put peas up their nose. You know, the, so the thing, you don't say I undertake the impulse to do, it's a strange thing to do, you wouldn't want people to do it. But we don't take any vows about it because it doesn't come up in anybody's mind to do it. He said, these are the things, these are the ways in which people might transgress. They might say something that hurts people. And we have tremendous, um, tremendous proof these days uh, of the ways in which people are transgressing, in my view, terribly. And uh, one of, I, I, I try not to listen to too much of it, but I think it's so painful. I, I think to myself, um, I don't think it's good for us as a culture, not that anybody's asking me to say, but I think maybe, the, maybe the television network should make a rule that we don't play anything that has nasty words in it. People say nasty things, they don't get coverage about it. Mm. You know, we, you know, we used to have rules in books about you can't print certain words. When I was growing up, it was... It was amazing how many asterisks had to be in books because they wouldn't say 
uh, offensive words, but now we say offensive words all over the place. And I wonder whether that doesn't make a certain hardening of the heart, because they're assaultive when you hear them or see them. On the other hand, I, if I don't get to say this at the end of today, I, I, I'm go, I, what I really want to talk about is goodness and how the Buddha taught goodness and what's good and what does good mean. But then I went to see the, uh, I went to see the performance, uh, the movie, from the National Theater of Hamlet. Was that amazing? I would have gone back the next day again. I would have gone back the next day again. It was, it was the best theater I've ever seen. Guildenstern in Act Two says to uh, Hamlet, uh, Hamlet says, uh, talking about are there good things or bad things? Uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. So uh, Guildenstern says, well, prison is a bad thing. Um, prison, my lord. Hamlet says, Denmark's a prison. Um, and Rosencrantz says, then is the world one? Hamlet says, a goodly one in which there are many confines, wards and dungeons, Denmark being one of the worst. We think not so, my lord. And Hamlet says, why then, tis none to you, for there is nothing, either good or bad. But thinking makes it so. That's a line that comes out of Hamlet, and we see it all the time. There's, there is no, nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. I read in, uh, when I went to look this up and print it out to bring it to you, in the side commentary, it said that Hamlet got that probably from... Could it be from Montaigne, who said the same thing, the French essayist Montaigne? I was going to say, something will happen to me. I'll see a little snip of something, and I'll decide, oh, I want to bring this to class next Monday, next Wednesday. And then things will build on it. The whole way, the, this whole week began, if I get there, with I went to the cemetery in San Rafael last week to show a friend of mine who was visiting from out of town my father's grave. And I went to the cemetery out on Fifth Street in San Rafael, where there's a cemetery out at the end of it. And uh, here's a big, expansive cemetery in an expanse where you can see a lot of graves because they're not, they're not gravestones. They're in the flat. So I look out, and there's a Christmas tree on one of the gravestones. And I took a picture of it on my phone. I, I just felt so touched that somebody probably has a Christmas tree at home, and brought a Christmas tree to the cemetery. You know, I thought to myself, somebody I once studied with said, death ends a life, not a relationship. And that's tremendously true. But I was just so touched, I thought, well, maybe it was a baby. There's a little Christmas tree. So I went and I looked at it, and there were two people, a man and a woman, I suppose they were married people. Could have been a sister and a brother, but they both lived to be old. And between them was this little Christmas tree. And I remarked about it. I was leaving. You drive past, you walk past the office of this cemetery. And I went in and I said, you know, I'm very touched by that Christmas tree. 
And he said, yeah, it's here every year. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, it was a week ago anyway, it says as it gets nearer Christmas, there's going to be more and more stuff out. And I thought to myself, this is so interesting, you know, the things we do. Uh, I think I was touched. Well, I, who can know why? I just felt touched. I think I was touched because I thought, really, death ends a life, but not a relationship. When, when someone dies out of your life, uh, I always know uh, when it's my mother's birthday. Yesterday, uh, day before yesterday, would have been my parents' 81st anniversary. They're both long gone. But it's my daughter's 31st anniversary because she got married on the same day. You remember things when they come up. And you remember who was who. And There is no bad or good, but thinking makes it so. It's like we feel, I think, unanimously upset about, uh, I, I'm guessing we feel unanimously upset about trophy hunting and lions getting killed. Um, we feel very good about when someone has a terrible illness, when you got that terrible <laughs> scorpion bite and you took antibiotics and you got better. Um, no? Yeah, no, no, that's a, that's the great part. But you know, I think that about that we have all these amazing ways that we can take this stuff that's um, uh, that that kills uh, organisms. But it's a wonderful thing that we have it. Uh, penicillin was not developed until was not available to the general public until at the end of World War II. It was used in the in treating soldiers and wounds. I'm happy to say it was the least available for them during the war, but it was a very big step forward um, in treating strep infections after the war uh, that hadn't been treatable before. Sophie? Yeah. So in my life, I don't go to good or bad very often. Yeah. But I just can't let go of certain things are really horrible. Yeah. They're bad. Mass shootings or 9-11 or... They are, and, uh, so yeah. what to do with that? Yeah, the, no, there's nothing redemptive about a mass and shooting, except, except, now, wait, wait, I'm not going to say anything terrible. What might be stuff. at this point, something's going to happen because we can't, we're living in an arsenal, right. and at some point there's going to be a necessary and sufficient condition that's going to really change this around. So positive things do come out of... Sometimes, but sometimes, but they don't, they don't justify it. If things aren't good or bad, they just happen. And they can have good or bad sequelae. That's it. Things aren't good or bad. Um, anyway, we could have a whole time on things are good or bad, because if I were on a debate team, I could do both sides. I am now about to do the side that's good. Okay. So they're, they're not good or bad. They're, they, they are good or bad, and there is such a thing. Okay. This is a... <laughs> I talked so long it went off. I got it all set. Okay. Here we, here we go. 
This is something that I actually wrote a long time ago. Uh, it's the beginning of a book called um, uh, Happiness is an Inside Job. Oh, no, it's because, uh, no, no, it's, it's the beginning of a book called Pay Attention for Goodness Sake. Okay. My friend Lou Richmond took ill suddenly and almost died of viral encephalitis. Lou and I are long-term members of a Buddhist teacher colleague group that he named Rhinoceros for what he saw as our common tendency to stake out independent paths. At a rhino meeting just a few days after Lou's crisis had passed, several of the group members, reassured that he would live, admitted to having begun to compose his eulogy. We would have been the people giving the eulogy had he died. We mentioned his many talents. Lou is a Zen teacher, Lou is a pianist, and a composer, and an author, and a lecturer, and a business consultant who is the CEO of his own computer design company. The best thing about Lou, though, Jack said, is that he's a truly good person. Roger laughed. Do you suppose, he said, that after all of our sophisticated Buddhist discussions and all of our meditation practice and all of our teaching that what it's all about is actually being a truly good person? I do. The Buddha was a profoundly good person. He was generous and moral, restrained and patient, honest and open-hearted. He's also tough. He did not confuse compassion with passivity. He obligated monks and nuns to leave the community when their presence was disruptive. In one of his earlier incarnations, uh, as a person presumably, he killed a murderer out of compassion to spare him the pain he would suffer in later lifetimes for the heinous crime he was about to commit. He acted wisely and energetically out of love on behalf of all beings. We could too. I think there's a clue in there. I haven't read this in a long time. I wrote it, but I haven't read it in a long time. That the, the piece about um, he killed a murderer out of compassion is a very important line. It's a story. It's a, I, I know the story is about a, um, it's a long-winded story, but it's the Buddha in a situation where the murderer, if not apprehended and killed at that moment, is going to cause a ship with a thousand people on it to sink, and all these people died, so he kills the murderer. So they say. And, but I, you know, again, when I started to write this thing for today, I, 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 I titled it Fabled, Fables and Their Usefulness, Even If They're Not True. So uh, there are a lot of fables that maybe are very useful and might not be exactly true in the sense of it happened. Um, we're about to celebrate uh, a tremendous fable that could still change the world. Uh, that we was, we're celebrating the, the uh, incredible birth of a person who said when uh, in the face of being, uh, in the face of losing his life, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And love one another as I have loved you, which is really from, for me, has always been the thing that Jesus said that I like the most of all. Love one another as I have loved you. That's a really beautiful thing to say. And I think that Jesus lived, and I think that he probably said these things. 
I'm not sure I believe about all the magic about the circumstances, but the magic about the circumstances is beautiful. And I was recently in Italy, and I went to lots of museums and churches, and the art about the magic of the birth and, uh, and Mary's birth and uh, Mary's ascendance into heaven. Uh, we took a whole day to go to um, where, what city was it? Uh, Padua, to see the uh, murals on the wall of the Scrovini Chapel, which you have to have tickets way in advance. And you see the meeting of Mary's parents and the, and the, uh, the, birth, the birth of Mary all the way around and uh, the angels weeping at the deposition of Jesus from the cross. And uh, it's a hugely moving experience, even that I, you know, I was not born, brought up a Christian. But universally, uh, the, the, the teachings of spectacular people who talk about, uh, uh, in Jesus' case, love one another as I have loved you, and, the Buddha said, just as a mother would give her life to support her one and only child, just so should we love all beings. All the injunctions in Judaism to love your neighbor as yourself, which means all the neighbors. The injunction is always to love. And the spectacular stories are, I, I'm sure, pretty much meant to get people's attention to say this was an important person who said important things. And it's the same important thing. Let's take care of each other. So I actually, I loved it that the, I started in with the, with the Christmas tree. But um, the way we, people, people, people make an impression on us. After my mother, and I don't know why I was going to say this, but uh, my mother died when I was in my early 20s. And um, I don't think I dreamt about her ever. I, I was really desolate about her loss. But for some years, when I was, I would have the experience of thinking about something I was about to do uh, that maybe was not the coolest thing, or maybe was not such a wise thing, or maybe not such a skillful thought or something. And I'd actually hear her voice in my mind saying, don't do that, Sylvia. And uh, I, I was, a, I, it stopped after a while. <laughs> I just finished saying that by four we have internalized how we should behave. <laughs> now I'm saying that somewhere in my 30s maybe I learned how to behave. But we have increasingly complex decisions to make all of our life. Maybe I had increasingly complex decisions to make. A man renovating his apartment at 447 West 50th Street, uh, someone named uh, Mataliano, uh, Mr. Mataliano, who's an acting coach who's lived there for a long time, was doing some renovating of his fireplace and apparently it was widened out from the inside. Anyway, a lot of old insides fell down, including a charred remnant of a letter to Santa Claus written in uh, 1904 uh, by a 
uh, a seven-year-old girl. Actually, there were two, a seven-year-old girl and her brother, Mary, and her brother Alfred, who was born in 1900, four years old. And Alfred, in his letter, had said, I would like a fire truck, uh, a hook and ladder, he said. He really wanted, that's what he wanted as a hook and ladder truck. The Mary's letter says, Dear Santa Claus, and it's framed here, apparently bona fide. I am very sad, I'm very glad that you are coming around tonight, it reads. The paper partly charred. My little brother would like you to bring him a wagon, which I know you cannot afford. I will ask you to bring him whatever you think best. Please bring me something nice, what you think best. She signed it Mary McGann and added, P.S., please do not forget the poor. Mr. Mataliano, who has read the letter countless times, still shakes his head at the implied poverty, the stoicism, and the selflessness of the last line, all from a girl who requests a wagon for her brother first and nothing specific for herself. And Mr. Mataliano is commenting here, this is a family that couldn't afford a wagon, and she's writing, don't forget the poor, he said. That just shot an arrow through me. What did she think the poor was? Yeah. So did that shoot an arrow through you, don't forget the poor? Yeah. So I had, I, I, this maybe is, is wrong think. I was thinking yesterday that it doesn't seem Christmasly enough. I haven't seen lots of decorations around and no Santa Clauses. Maybe I, it's because I haven't been in a mall, but I haven't seen <laughs> Santa Clauses. But I didn't get, you know, nobody sends Christmas cards anymore. No, that's not true. We got some Christmas cards, but maybe a dozen. Not we, People used to send out lots of Christmas cards. And I understand that it's uh, not sustainable and it's not a good idea and it, you know, all of that. But still, I think that's, I had somehow a feeling that Christmas got lost. Uh, everybody's away on a holiday somewhere. And, you know, this, I'm about to say a bleak thing in March. I'd be saying a bleak thing. Do you want to do that? Because <laughs> maybe it'll change around at some point. Um, but it seems like it, it used to be a children's holiday. And I lamented that it was all about how many toys is Santa Claus going to bring you. Uh, and that people had forgotten that it was Jesus' birthday. And uh, I used to feel badly about that. I, even it's, you know, that's my sort of empathic feeling badly for where it isn't even my badly to feel badly about. But, <laughs> but anyway, uh, I began to think that there's no Christmas because the holiday starts uh, at Halloween. And it's, it's no longer even Thanksgiving. It's uh, the night before Black Friday. Uh, that it really shifted around. And what is Santa putting in your stocking? To what is the, uh, where can I get a big flat screen TV if I'm there at 4.30 in the morning on, on Friday? And uh, I sound terribly cynical, but um, maybe, the, maybe, it's, maybe it's not a question of good or bad. Maybe it's just a phase. Maybe it's, I don't know what it is. I don't know. 
It's a good that I don't have to, that I'm not in charge of the world because I don't know. <laughs> but I think it would be a good idea if people all over the world, this is, you know, if they may be in charge of the world, everybody could take the precepts. That would be a good idea. That would be a good idea. Don't forget the poor. You know, from the point of view of the Buddha on that, let's go back to the Buddha and not my... <laughs> not my ramble about commercialism and materialism. The Buddha said that the main precept was generosity. The main parami, the main virtue of the heart to um, uh, cultivate was the habit of generosity which doesn't only mean giving money, it means giving attention to who needs something. It means, it means all of the kindnesses that we do, all of the doors that we haul open, hold open, all of the uh, people that we don't cut in front of on the highway, all of the people who we say, you know, after you, after you, that's the same, cutting in on the highway is the opposite of after you, is before you. <laughs> when you open a door for somebody, it is after you. All the ways that you say, can I help you with this? I'm thinking about uh, Christmas carols um, uh, that uh, the, you can, I don't know all the words, to Good King Wenceslas. Do you know, remember that? Mm -hmm. Who knows it? Yeah. Well enough to sing it. There you go. Oh, and Marty can sing. Do it. Do it. I can't sing every verse. Well, just do the first okay. one. That makes the point. Okay. Good King Wenceslas looked out on the feast of Stephen when the snow lay round about deep and crisp and even. Brightly shone the moon that night Though the frost was cruel, when a poor man came in sight, gathering winter fuel. Hither, page, and stand by me. <laughs> if thou knowest it's telling, yonder peasant, who is he? Where and what his dwelling? Sire, he lives a good league hence, underneath the mountain, right upon the forest fence, by St. Agnes' fountain. Bring me flesh and bring me wine, bring me pine logs hither, Thou and I will see him dine. Da 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 da. <laughs> when we take them thither. Anyway, they take the treasures or these things to the poor man, and uh, and the and the page is getting weaker. He cannot go any further, and so. Good King Wenceslas tr uh, says, "Trod in my steps," uh, and uh, and of course his feet everywhere he stepped was warm and enabled the page to continue on. I mean, it's just a beautiful, a beautiful story.
Friends. Oh, it's on. Yeah. Oh. Okay. And uh, oh, I turned it off when we were singing. That's why, in order to not, because I can't carry a tune and you can. <laughs> uh, and uh, at his memorial service, there was lots of singing. And at his 99th birthday party, he was singing at the very end. And Marty is a great knower of all the music of that era. Thank you. Dona Nobis was his favorite. He did. And, he, and that one, he woke up and was singing along, really. I think he was awake the whole time, but he became really animated at that time. So Good King Wenceslaus went out on the Feast of Stephen, and he did that. There's a story about the Baal Shem Tov, uh, the great mystic of uh, Jewish mysticism was in the middle of uh, conducting prayers on some great and holy day like Yom Kippur, and he suddenly vanishes from the uh, high altar, and only some place later in the story do you discover that he vanishes and rushes into the forest and delivers kindling to some poor old woman who lives there by herself, and it's cold, and uh, he somehow divines that and rushes out in another guise, magically brings kindling and firewood, and is back to close the closing prayers. So in between, this is why I said fables and why they're good. I mean, we, really, if we have role models of people who do extraordinarily good things in addition to being revered, that part of, part of what makes people in these stories, if you follow that along, you might think, I want to be a wonderful person like the Baal Shem Tov or a king like Wenceslas or a Buddha. And say what they are is they are perfectly well behaved and because they really do get it about other people being affected by what you do. Other people are affected by what you do. Even, oh, this is probably why I, I really am, I lament having brought up my own little personal rant about where is Christmas because I spread unpleasant thoughts around. So please erase that from the record. <laughs> the jury will strike that from the record. <laughs> Alan Jones, who was the dean of Grace Cathedral until he retired a year or so ago, said about Christianity, I don't believe the story, but I am a believer. So how do you have a, the head of a great cathedral in the Christian Episcopal tradition and say, I don't believe the story? But I think in these modern days, the, the switch has a post-enlightenment, actually. The switch has been made in more or less different amounts from this is literally true to this is something we could learn from. It doesn't, uh, um, it comes up for me about um, maybe about uh, my, my zeal for uh, what, what we're doing here, for purification of the heart. I would love it if I actually, if all my, if all my actions were motivated by really a desire to not cause pain in any way. I, I, you know, I'm a pretty kind person. I don't go out of my way to do terrible things. But I see that in my personal relationships, I sometimes 
shade the way I say things to have the story come out one way or another way. Maybe I'm the only person that does that here, but if you're not, then maybe it came up while you were taking the precepts about using speech in a way that's not exploitive. There's a way, you know, you can think of something that's not terribly egregious. You can either say, ah, oh, I'm so tired, you can't believe the terrible day I had, and hope that the people in your family will say, oh, well, we'll wash the dishes then. Or you can say, you know what, I'd really love it if you guys wash the dishes tonight. That would be another way to do it. So that would be using speech in a way that's exploitive. Ah, oh, so tired. That just makes other people feel bad. You could just ask. <laughs> so I wanted to put in something that was minor. I don't know. And maybe nobody here does that either. Uh, the point of the precept practice is I really am feeling and this is a long story, and we'll talk about it in the new year a lot, I really see that the uh, trajectory of contemplative practice and Buddhist practice, I can only speak for the Buddhist practice in the part of the world that I see the Buddhist practice here and in this country and in IMS and in the Shambhala Sun, soon to be called Lion's Roar, and uh, in, uh, in Western Buddhism, that the shift over the 30 years more that I've known it has come from I really want to be deeply illuminated and see really uh, how the world is made to I want to really do a purification of the heart not so that I get medals for being um, wonderful but so that I, I really have a happy life that the the truth about that understanding not how the world works but how the mind works and understanding profoundly that integrity is the cause of happiness. That's the best thing I said all morning. Understanding profoundly that integrity is the cause of happiness. And you say, well, yeah, sure, you don't have a, you don't have a guilty conscience. But, you know, I don't do things about which I'd feel guilty about. I, 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 in even those situations where I say I might be not so perfect in this and that and the other. So I have remorse, but I, I don't do terrible, egregious things. But when I've made some choice that I know in the moment I could have done it another way, I feel happy about it. I'm trying to think of some really simple way that a, a family member of mine might say something that catches me. And it, maybe it's one of my children or one of my grandchildren that they say something and I think, oh, I wish they didn't say that. I could just correct that a little bit. Anybody ever has that? <laughs> ever? Ever? So here's a big trick that I am now working on. I could just say, you know, I wish you wouldn't say this, whatever it is. I don't do it. I'm trying. I'm just learning, you know. But when I don't do it, maybe one of my children tells me something about one of my grandchildren, and I have the impulse to say, oh, you should tell them to do da-da-da-da-da. They're the parent, not me. And it's not my business. I'm not on that committee. It's very hard for a person who's been on a lot of committees and who feels like they know the right thing to not self-appoint themselves onto committees and tell people how to do. But when I, don't, when I don't even say, I think you should do X and Y, I feel 
like I did a monumental thing. I really, you know. It's almost 11, and we did not, we didn't talk about more, as much about the precepts as I meant to, but we will into the new year. We'll do this forever, I think. Because I hope. I hope. I hope you hope. Um, we didn't spend a few minutes thinking about... Maybe we usually do this at the end of the time that we're sitting and meditating. And my eyes are closed, mostly yours are. But into our communal space, uh, we'll, we'll do a blessing for this holiday of hope. We've also just passed the solstice. We have incrementally more light every day in our lives. Somebody told me, uh, sent me a, I was, I'll read it next time I'm here. Somebody sent me um, a very, very thoughtful uh, essay about the use of the word more light in our life. That we really, sensitivity to light and dark includes a sensitivity to the fact that uh, light and dark is part of a stereotypical that notion that sometimes becomes a racist stereotype that light is good and dark is not. The person who sent it was a Jewish educator and writing about the need to, uh, first of all, separate what needs to be separated, that uh, the solstice and a more cheerful mind doesn't have anything to do with anything else. But also recognizing uh, the, uh, the hidden unconsciousness that come with using uh, one or another to mean good. And he said, you know, when it, he was talking about lighting Hanukkah candles, and he said, the Hanukkah candles aren't beautiful because they're going to get brighter. Uh, they're beautiful because they're in the context of the dark. That we have to see things not as separate things. Everything is a continuum. And that the myth that we tell about the Hanukkah candles is an odd thing to end on, but we finish with Hanukkah now. And the myth that we tell ourselves about the triumph of the Maccabees, I just actually, from reading that essay, I discovered that it's a myth that the Maccabees were in the right. They had actually, um, they had invaded what was already Hellenistic property. Uh, and they uh, had transgressed on somebody else's property. Uh, it's a, the, the whole thing is, when, the whole essay is in the context of when will, we, when will we tell children what's really the truth? And how will we keep the, how will we keep the, um, the, 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 uh, uh, how will we keep the moral of the fable that we want to have going without the magic of a fable, without the magic of a fable? How will we get to be like Alan Jones who says, I don't believe the story, but I'm a believer? Different, I didn't even say, and everybody said yes when I said that. We didn't say, what do we believe? I believe that people are fundamentally good and that when, when their minds are clear, they behave well. And they wish well. So we'll talk more about that. That's what I believe. I really fundamentally believe that. If we were naming people today, I would have named my friend Geraldine. 
who I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, who's 90 years old and a psychiatrist still practicing, who suddenly got much worse, which I mentioned last week, and now miraculously, with modern medicine, has had an, uh, an operation that removed the piece of bone that was pressing on her neck and her paralysis is going away. And she's recuperating in UCSF. So I'm just tremendously grateful for the modern medicine that can do a thing like that. And I hope that she recovers into this year. And I'm glad to tell you about her. I'm thinking about a young woman who's part of our greater sangha, who is uh, now just about 30 weeks pregnant of a pregnancy that worried about ending too soon. But now she's at 30 weeks, she's not worried. Looks like it'll happen. Who are you thinking about? Also thinking about the 133 million people they said were traveling this weekend. That's like every other person in the United <laughs> States is traveling somewhere. And it's very bad weather. <laughs> thinking about the, uh, the Salvation Army that gives out hundreds, probably thousands of meals tomorrow. There are drivers that show up there at uh, six o'clock in the morning and fill their cars with boxes of lunches for people that they deliver to apartments all over. I wish I could still do it. I used to do it with my son, but uh, there are things you don't do when you So let's look around at each other uh, just for a minute and think of, look at somebody that you don't know and don't know what their story is. You can make them your, you could be the secret Santa for them. <laughs> and wish them well. Actually, you can wish it out loud, doesn't matter. I think that I am not here next Wednesday. Is that true? That's true. I'm not here next Wednesday. But I am here the day after. How many people are coming on Thursday? No, Friday. Friday, New Year's. Oh, we're going to have a New Year's party, a six-hour New Year's party. Into this new year. So I won't see you. I can really say I'll see you next year. I'll see you next year on the 1st or later on in January. And really, the, the traditional way to end the class is to say, may, the merit, may this be an offering of the merit of our being together be made on behalf. And it's a, a kind of an archaic way of saying it. And then you have to think about what's merit and is it tangible and who's merit. So I don't do it, but I'm going to do it now because it's the end of the year and it's a time to do traditional and magic things. So. <laughs> If there's a magical way in which the merit of my practice, which is good for me, could be transferred to 
the well-being of all beings everywhere and the merit of all your practice, if there's such a thing with merit and all of that, may it indeed, our being together, benefit all beings everywhere. May all beings everywhere be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. So Merry Christmas. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.